Well, good morning to all of you. Um, I do have a little bit of a, a cold that I'm getting over, so I apologize if it's hard to hear in the back. Uh, but um, there are seats a little closer to the front if you are having trouble hearing. So just, you know, the, we won't charge you anymore if you decide to move up. Um, so we're going to talk about corporate prayer this morning. So I don't know when you read corporate prayer, if you think it's like some kind of a company that um, specializes in prayer and sells it to Christian people and they get a discount if they buy enough of it. Um, but that's not what it is. Um, corporate prayer is just as opposed to private prayer. So when you are in your prayer closet, um, how many of you all go into a closet to pray? Nobody. Wow. I know what to say. Um, so when you are at home by yourself praying, okay, not in a closet, um, you are praying private prayer. And when you are with a group of people praying together, you are doing what some people call corporate prayer. Um, so we're going to begin um, with a little introduction. This is um, going back to the beginning of the church. So we know that Jesus had 12 followers. We call them disciples or apostles. And there were plenty of women also who were following Jesus. We think that the women probably were a little better at listening to Jesus than what the men were. So, um, so they seem to actually have gotten into less trouble than the men. So, you know, that's probably um, says something about where we're at this morning. Milo has said before that the apostles were a mess, and I think he's right. Um, they were constantly trying to jockey for position. Um, you can see that in Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27. Um, James and John wanted to call fire down from heaven on a town that didn't want them to visit them. That's in Luke 9, 54 and 55. And more than that, they were very much focused on Jesus bringing an earthly kingdom to defeat foreign oppressors, um, specifically the Roman Empire. And I suppose they saw themselves as generals in waiting who would help bring his plan to pass and eventually be rewarded. Um, we see this even after the crucifixion. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the apostles said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so they're saying, okay, now you've done that death and resurrection thing. Now can we get on with the battles? That's what we really want. So um, you can imagine somebody who can raise people from the dead is going to be pretty invincible in a battle. Um, but Jesus didn't say that. So the question for Jesus was what to do to build these men into a cohesive unit that would and could change the world. And so he did a number of things. First of all, he spent a lot of time teaching them. Uh, they didn't seem to listen very well, but after his ascension, many of these things came back to them. And probably that was the Holy Spirit working. The second thing was he created small groups and sent them out. And we see this in the sending of the 12 in Mark 6, verses 7 through 13, and the sending out of the 72 in Luke chapter 10. And part of this was so that they could learn not only to depend on Jesus, but to, um, to look to each other to help solve external problems or problems with relationships. Um, and the third thing is he reprimanded them when he saw them losing their focus. And we see this particularly in his interactions with Peter. So Peter really was the one who put his foot in his mouth the most. And so Jesus had to say, you know, Peter, you are off track. I know you, you have a lot to share. You are outspoken, but you're saying the wrong things right now. We need to walk this thing back. So we've just covered a whole bunch of ground here, but I 
just want to kind of set this up as as a basis for where the church came from. So I think about this and wonder about the difference between workplace and family. Workplaces often have some form of friendship. They are common goals, and yet when people go home, they leave behind those connections. And families are different. They're invisible connections that tie people together. When I've not seen my brothers and sisters for months um, and we get together like we did over New Year's, I know that we have a connection there. Um, And in between times, if I need to call them and I say, I really need you to drop what's going on in your life and come and help me, I can depend on them. They will be there for me. Um, So what does our church look like? Is it a club where we get together for food and fellowship and a little chatting after the service? Is it a workplace where we get together and can accomplish some of the work of the kingdom? But at the end of the day, we go home and forget about other people. Is it a family where we miss the people when we are not with them and feel connections that nothing can break and that we can depend on when we're in time of trouble? Um, And I'm afraid that many churches gravitate either to the club or to the workplace tendency. And yet, church, while it includes both of these aspects, should be a family. That's our goal. It doesn't always happen, but that's what we want. And that brings with it challenges. So when Jesus died, everything fell apart. So Peter denied Jesus. Nearly all the apostles fled. And although John and, and Jesus' mother showed up at the cross, everybody else was gone. And um, we find after his death, and even after the resurrection, that his uh, followers were hiding out, hoping not to get caught. They were sure that the end had come for Jesus and was coming for them soon. And from resurrection to Pentecost, there were 40 days um, till the ascension, and then 10 more days till Pentecost. Um, so 50 days in all. And um, so Jesus ascended, and over the next 10 days, two things happened. They had a lot of prayer meetings, and they appointed a new apostle to take the place of Judas, who wasn't really much of an apostle in the beginning, but he wasn't even present at this time. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So this is sort of the introduction to the church. So Peter's preached a bunch of... uh, and saved a bunch of people, um, 3,000 people, it says. And, um, and then it talks in a brief summary statement about the things that these people did. So it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So those are four things there. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the three things that these people were doing together was praying together, and we're going to talk about that today. Um, sacramental living or, or practicing the ordinances together. And we see this in the breaking of bread. Um, and they were practicing church as a community together 
and they were listening to the apostles' doctrine or teaching. And the results of these things were in prayer, I'm sorry, in praise and in power. So those are the two things that we see in the church, that they were filled with praise and they were filled with power. And so I would like to have a a series of four messages. Um, I'm going to leave the ordinances um, for Milo. He's going to cover those at some point over the next um, 12 months or so. Um, The first message today is going to be on corporate prayer. Uh, The next one will be on apostles' teaching. Uh, Then we're going to talk about the church as a family and finally talk about the power of the church. And I want us to apply this. So what are the ways that we at Bethel can do these things better? Okay, it's a it's a disaster. if We read the Bible. and We only see commendation for where we're at. Jesus doesn't just want to pat us on the back. He wants to say, follow me. You can do better. I know you're doing well. I love you. Do better. So that's an introduction, and that's, a, that's probably enough that we can probably stop there, but we won't. Um, so every message I have heard preached on prayer focuses on individual prayer. Um, people bring up things like the amazing prayer life of John, George Mueller. They talk about Elijah who prayed earnestly, and it didn't rain on the earth for three and a half years, and then he prayed again, and it rained. That's in James 5, 17 and 18, and obviously in the Old Testament, too. Um, They'll mention John Knox, who died praying on his knees. And when there's a big need in our church, our tendency is not to call a prayer meeting, but rather to divide up the hours and have multiple people pray privately for that need. Um, And I don't think that's anything wrong with that, but it seems pretty clear that the early church had a different idea. So they prayed together as a group. Um, And this includes things like prayer meetings, but it can include much smaller groups than that as well. So in the early church, this was really common. Um, It probably was usually small groups. Um, You have to remember the early church didn't even have churches, like church buildings as such. They just had um, um, homes that they met in. Maybe there were upper rooms where they could put a a few more people, but they wouldn't have had a group even this size in that kind of a room for the most part. you know, possibly like when Paul visited Ephesus um, saying farewell, probably all the Christians from the different little church groups within the city would get together and they would listen to him. But uh, for the most part, they were organized into small groups. Um, so prayer meetings have gone out of style in this country. Um, I did just a little research on this, um, and only about 45% of churches have prayer meetings um, for a midweek service. Um, so... Um, And of the churches that have prayer meetings, most report that attendance is only about 20% of what it is for Sunday service. So this begs begs the question, why aren't people interested in prayer meetings anymore? Is it that we don't need them? Um, And I would say certainly it isn't because prayer isn't important um, or because God doesn't answer prayers. He does. We know that. Uh, but maybe people are too busy to actually attend a midweek service. They have jobs, they have other things going, and they're tired. So tiredness is a reason why people don't go to church. Uh, maybe the services don't seem as important as individual prayer times. And, of course, we think prayer is important. We just don't think prayer meetings are important. 
And beyond that, we live in an individualistic society, and there are an awful lot of self-made men and women out there, um, and so it's not surprising that they would see their individual prayers as more important than some kind of a corporate prayer. Maybe the services are part of the problem. They feel a little dry, and um, we'll try to talk a little bit about that later. Um, but my experience with prayer meetings has not been ideal. Uh, most have a short time of Bible study, a little devotional, or a time um, when we think about some thoughts from the Bible. Then somebody takes some requests. It usually take a little while to draw out of people. People come up with a few things from here and there. Some, uh, and then we divide up into small groups to pray, pray and then we dismiss. Um, and maybe that's just not enough. Maybe there's not a lot of light there. And if you're not getting a living Jesus in your, in, your, in your prayer meeting, then it's easy just to let that go. It just doesn't feel important. Um, it's not surprising that people stop doing things that they don't believe are benefiting them. I have, I have a lot of patients who start taking vitamins, and uh, most of them eventually stop. Um, and the reason why is because you don't really feel any different when you take a vitamin. You're, you're taking it because you think it probably is doing you some good, and maybe it is. I don't know. Um, you know, the same thing's true for cholesterol medicine. Um, you know, if nothing happens that says the cholesterol medicine is probably working, but so many people, they, they take it for a while, and they're not convinced that they feel any better, and so they just stop taking it. Um, and that's true for most things that are their prevention kinds of things. Um, you know, um, so if we don't see benefits from prayer meetings, then we stop doing them or we stop attending them. And I would say that if we aren't seeing benefits from corporate prayer, from prayer meetings, then we're doing them wrong. Uh, maybe there are some different methods for operating these times of prayer that would bring more benefit. Maybe, too, we aren't paying attention. Maybe God is doing a lot of different things in our lives, and we just don't see them. We don't bring the results back to the group to say, you know, God answered my prayer this week. And it was because you all helped me, and you prayed, too. And then maybe some of the reason is because we just aren't doing them. We're not getting together. We're not sharing with each other. There was a, there have been different revivals in the country of Wales. So uh, Wales is, I, I don't know, if it's a country. It's, a, it's part of the United Kingdom. It's a little corner on the west side of, of um, England, and um, they have their own language. Um, and in 1904, Wales needed a revival. Um, probably a lot of other places need a revival. Probably we need revival just as much as they did. Um, but it was not a country that was focused on God. And the churches in the country began to cry out to God for revival in their country. There were numerous small gatherings of people that came together asking God to touch their country. And one observer said this. He said, if it be asked why the fire of God fell on Wales, the answer is simple. Fire falls where it is liable to catch and spread. As one has said, Wales provided the necessary tinder. Here were thousands of believers in small towns and villages and in great cities crying to God day after day for the fire of revival to fall. This was not merely a talk with Jesus, but daily 
agonizing intercession. At one prayer meeting, Joseph Jenkins asked for personal testimonies. Different people tried to direct the meeting in other directions, but he kept bringing it back to Jesus. And one girl named Flory Evans stood up and told the congregation, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. And somehow this young girl's testimony shook the congregation to its core. And one after another, the congregation rose up either to commit or to recommit their lives to Jesus. The people spoke in this revival of an overwhelming sense of God's presence. There'd be prayer meetings where people would pray and then someone would start to sing, Oh, send your Holy Spirit, Lord. And over the next two years, 100,000 people in the country of Wales would give their lives to God. The people at the time shared that they could not sleep and they could not stay away from the meetings. Services would carry on to 3 o'clock in the morning and on disbanding, the people would march through the town streets singing praises to the Lamb. And I've never seen anything like that. And yet it's clear to me that the foundation of that was small groups of people coming together and praying their hearts out to God. What are some examples of corporate prayer? So Luke 9, verse 28, um, is talking about the transfiguration. It says, And it came to pass about eight days after these things, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. Luke 11, verse 1, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Um, Jesus did pray on his own. We know that. But he also prayed with his disciples. And um, I think so often we picture Jesus alone on a mountain praying, uh, crying out to God, maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, But even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wanted his apostles to be there praying with them. They just didn't. They fell asleep. Um, But he brought them along. He didn't. He wasn't there by himself. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 has the Lord's Prayer in it. We know how that begins. It says, Our Father, which art in heaven. Have you ever thought about the reason why the first word in that prayer is our? This is a corporate prayer. This is not a prayer, my Father, which is in heaven. I'm going to pray this on my own by myself. This is a prayer meant to be shared by a group of people who are crying out to God. And it seems clear that Jesus was commanding his disciples to meet together to pray, and not just to pray individually, even though he just told them to pray in their closets. Um, A lot of this, um, I read a book called um, And the Place Was Shaken by John Franklin, and I would recommend it. Um, I think he maybe puts a little too much emphasis on corporate prayer, but it, it will challenge you. It will make you think about why you're able to stay away from prayer meetings and why there isn't power there and what things we can do to energize those things. And he says that when he looked at the 37 verses in the gospel that contain Jesus' teachings on prayer, he found that in 33 of them, the words were plural. Okay, this is not evident in English because we use the same word for singular and for plural. You could mean you individually or it could mean you, y'all. So he says Matthew 7, 7 might be better translated something like this. Y'all ask, and it will be given to y'all. Y'all seek, and y'all will find. Y'all knock, and it will be open to y'all. So 
I'm not very Southern, but you get the picture, right? Jesus is saying, do it together, and I will answer you collectively. Acts 1.14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. This is talking about a group of disciples that came back from the Ascension. Uh, We know from later on that there were roughly a group of 120 that was meeting together. Um, And our guess was this was probably the same upper room that they were meeting in that um, the Last Supper took place in, a disciple of Jesus owned. Um, And this time of prayer was readying their heart for the time of the Pentecost. We don't know how much of this 10 days between the Ascension and when Pentecost came was spent in prayer, but it seems like a lot of it was. Acts 4, 24 through 31. Um, and this is where the verse up here comes from. It says, And when they heard that, they lifted up then their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for you to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness that they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. This was the first time that the apostles and the others were personally threatened since the death of Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus had been killed, so there was always a threat over their head, but they were here directly threatened. And as a result, they came together in prayer. We see that their focus was not on themselves. They don't pray, Lord, protect us from being crucified. Lord, shield our people from those who would do them harm. What they pray for is for the growth of the kingdom and the message of Jesus going forth. That was what was important to them. And we find at the end of this that the place was shaken. God was moving there. God had heard their prayer. And he was showing his power in a real and mighty way. Acts eight fifteen through 17 who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them. They were only baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I don't fully understand this passage. This is talking about the Samaritans, um, and somehow they were converted, and yet um, it wasn't until the apostles came to Samaria and laid their hands on them that they received the Holy Ghost. Um, Maybe it was the fact that they were Samaritans, and the, the rest of the church, the Jewish church, wouldn't accept them until the apostles had given them a special prayer. But 
what we know is that when they came together, that the Holy Spirit did come. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. This is a story of Peter in prison. So you all know that story. Um, so when Peter got put into prison, um, they were afraid. Okay, was Peter afraid? No, Peter wasn't praying at all. Peter was sleeping. Okay, now James um, had already been killed. Okay, so this is, this is shaking things up a little bit. They knew that bad things could happen. Okay, there had been threats made before, but Herod had had um, arrested James and um, and beheaded him, and um, and so here Peter was taken and put into prison. In Acts chapter twelve, verse five, it says Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And we notice a couple of things in this story, so I'm not going to read the whole story think we really have time for that um but the first thing is that their prayer was answered um and it was answered fairly dramatically peter um is sleeping in prison okay so he said he's um he's not really too worried i guess um and an angel came and woke him up didn't wake up any of the guards um so i guess he didn't make too much noise or they were sleeping um through uh, miraculous power um and uh, Peter just walks out of the prison. The door's open for him. He walks out. Door's shut back up. And um, the next morning when um, Herod's men came to get Peter, Peter wasn't there. The guards were there, but he wasn't. So I noticed, though, in this story that while the church was praying vigorously for him, I don't think they really believed that their prayer would be answered. Um Maybe they were thinking of the similar kinds of prayer services that they'd had when James was arrested. And James had not been miraculously freed. Because um, Rhoda went to the door and was so shocked to see Peter that she didn't let him in. Um, but she returned to the, tell the others, and they just thought she was delusional. Oh, Rhoda, you're just so in the spirit. You think Peter's out there. You know, it, well, if it's, and this is the weird thing, it said, well, if, you know, if somebody's out there, it's Peter's ghost, which was kind of weird, because why would a ghost knock on the door? As far as I know, ghosts can just walk through doors. I don't really believe in ghosts, but, you know, if they're there, they're, they don't knock on doors, really, I don't think. Anyway, not in the stories I've heard. Um, so the people didn't, they weren't praying in faith. They weren't praying, you know, God, I want by 1052, Peter to walk through this door, and we're all going to praise you when he comes in. They were saying, God, we we don't know what your will be done. We're we're worried. Ah, what's what's gonna happen to the church if Peter's gone? He's kind of he, he's pretty outspoken. He's a good preacher. We we really would miss him. God do something. And um and God did something and they weren't expecting it. So, you know, probably they weren't very different from us. Uh maybe the apostles were, maybe the apostles were you know, really prayed in faith, and maybe just like common people didn't so much. So we're going to move on here um, to reasons why we should pray corporately. Um, so the first thing is that it encourages us. Um, and I, I was thinking about prayer meetings that I've attended, um, and my mind went to um, when I was working in El Resbaladero, which is in El Salvador. So 
the the clinic in El Salvador, which is now now shut, um, they used to see lots and lots of patients. So it wasn't unusual that I would see um, 75, 80 patients in a day. And I would get to the end of the day, and I was just weary. Um, I'm not I'm not a a wonderful Spanish speaker, and um, and between um, muddling through in Spanish and you know sometimes I, you know sometimes people who speak Spanish don't have teeth, and that seems to make it a little more difficult for them to pronounce their words. They know exactly what they're saying, but you don't. Um, anyway, I was just physically and mentally exhausted, and didn't really feel like going to a prayer meeting. Um, but I'd sort of drag myself along because, you know, what would they say if the North American fellow didn't show up, right? Uh, listening to the prayers of those earnest people strengthened me in a way that staying home feeling sorry for myself wouldn't have done. First Thessalonians 5 verse 11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do come together, encourage each other. Those of you who are tired, lift up those who aren't so tired. And if you're all tired, then you can just sympathize. It focuses us on the kingdom. So we have a real tendency to focus on our own personal needs, the needs of those who are close to us. And when we come together, I hope that it draws our vision farther afield. So Lord's Prayer in Matthew 5, in Matthew 6 is a corporate prayer. Um, there's a reason it begins with the word our. Um, and the first thing it talks about is thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that should be our focus. God, increase your kingdom. Show us ways that we can help to increase that kingdom. It leads to confession. James 5, 14 and 15 says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. If you have committed sin, they shall be forgiven. And I think our focus often with this passage is on anointing with oil. When you're sick, you know, well, I mean, you know, not sick, like cold sick, but like, you know, when you're really sick, you call the ministry and they'll come and pour some oil on you and um, and God will sometimes fix you. And sometimes not because, you know, that's the way these things work. Um, but I think the bigger the bigger focus here is on corporate prayer of a group of people who are going to come together and pray for somebody who is battling something for healing, and for confession of sin. So this passage is not saying that all sickness comes from sin, and I I hope we don't read it that way, but it is saying that these times are times when we should allow the Spirit to purify our hearts and lives. So when you're battling something, it is a time to say, God, refine me. Use this thing for your benefit and make me more like you. These times foster openness. Um, so prayer time is not simply about confession. Um, that can be part of it. But it can include honest testimonies about things that we're struggling with and ways in which God is working in our hearts and lives. 
and ways in which other people can productively pray for us in those things. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And this is true in a lot of areas of life, but it's very true in prayer. And then it leads to revival. Second Chronicles 7.14, I, I hear a lot of people quote this verse. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And everybody focuses on other people turning from their wicked ways with this passage. And God is saying, If your land is not what it should be, come together and pray. Cry out to God for what is going on. If there's ever been a time that needs revival, it's now. We know that. Do we come together? Do we raise up to God, cry saying, heal this land. Make it what it should be. So what are some things that we can do to make group prayer times more meaningful? Um, And I'm going to run down through some different things. I I think the most important thing is that our hearts, our minds are in a prayerful state. It's just so hard if you come to prayer meeting and you're thinking about all the things that you have to do the rest of this week. And you're thinking about how tired you are and everything else that's, ways on your mind and it's hard to energize yourself into into wanting to pray in that situation other than just say poor me god you know like jonah kind of prayers right you know jonah has jonah prayed a lot but jonah didn't pray things that made it sound like he cared about anybody but jonah and maybe we're good at that god my life is terrible so tired Nobody really respects me. Do something. You don't even know what we want him to do. So be willing to make prayer the main focus of these times. Um, it feels daunting to pray for a long time. Uh, what, what, you're going to run out of things to say to God. Um, if you've ever dated somebody who was a long ways away, you probably spent time on the telephone um, and, um, question is, do you ever, when you're dating somebody who's a long ways away, think, you know, what's going to happen when we run out of things to say to each other? Do you ever think that when you're with somebody that you love and you care about? I would hope not. You, you don't think about that. If you think about it in a conversation, that's a problem. Like, boy, I... I don't know. I only have enough topics to get through about 20 minutes here. What's going to happen? And yet somehow when we talk to God, we, you know, I guess maybe because we're talking to him like we would to Santa Claus, we, we just really struggle because we're like, you know, I've I've said all the things I need. I'm done. Well, anyway, God, thanks for listening. Amen. Um, so yeah. Make prayer the main focus. We don't need to have Bible study. We don't need to take prayer requests in a big group. We can take it in small groups. But make God the focus. Uh, Begin with a focus on adoration and praise. 
God is good. We are thankful, and we should not hesitate to say so. Uh, we've just come through a season of Thanksgiving. Uh, Christmas time should be um, a time when we think about a great gift that was given to us. And yet, I think we see prayer as utilitarian. It's a shopping list that you take to God Mart and fill your cart with stuff and hope that he doesn't take anything out of the checkout line. And it shouldn't be like that. Part of prayer is simply to get our hearts in the right place to come into the presence of God. This is not about pumping up God's ego, but rather to get us to see him as he is. Then move to times of confession. So these don't have to be huge sins, but God wants to hear from us about areas in which we feel weak. I was short with my children. I'm really struggling with patience. Lord, I want to trust you to deal with whatever thing, but it's hard for me to do so. And if we see areas in which our church is not what it should be, lifting those up to him as well. And then think about God's kingdom. Not just here at Bethel, but much farther away. And this is going to bring energy and joy. John Franklin wrote about a revival in 1990 in um, in Kenya. And he says um, in the book that I mentioned that he was walking on a dirt road between towns. And there by the side of the road, there were three men waiting for his group. And they said, are you from America? Yes, John replied, are you the ones who have come to tell us about the word of God? We've heard that you have come and we've heard of Jesus and his great power. Tell me, how does one become his follower? My my friends and I want to know. And those three Kenyans right there chose to follow Jesus. But John said it didn't begin there. It began months and months prior to his group's arrival in Mombasa. There were prayer meetings. He was in Kenya for two weeks, and every single night that he was there, a different church had an all-night prayer meeting, crying out to God for revival and for souls to be added to the church. And he said, the greatest workings of God come by corporate prayer, and we will not see the power of God in sufficient measure to transform the world around us until We are willing to pray together. Praying together needs to have a priority equal to preaching and teaching. And then we finish up. So we've talked about other things. We finish up with our requests. And that's the smallest part of it. In 1857, America was in the middle of a strong economy. But a Dutch reform man by the name of Jeremiah Lampier tacked up notices around New York City calling for a weekly prayer meeting on Wednesdays to last from noon to 1 p.m. The first week, only six people showed up, and none of them showed up before 12.30. But he kept meeting, and with six months' time, between 10 and 50,000 businessmen were meeting every day in New York to pray during the noon hour. By 1858, those prayer meetings had spread and were happening in numerous cities across the United States. And that is when the revival began. Between 1858 and 1859, somewhere around a million people came to know Jesus. D.L. Moody, at the end of his life, said, I would like, before I go hence, as die, see the church quickened as it was in 1857. I believe our world needs revival. And I've heard some of you all say the same thing. But are we willing to pray to seek God's face to have that happen? 
What is the thing that keeps us from gathering in small groups or here at prayer meetings? I believe this is one of the key activities that the churches can and should be doing, and yet we don't do very well. Um, there's, a, there's a story that Jonathan Goforth told in, um, in the book, Goforth to China. He was a missionary to China. And it says there that at a farewell meeting in a church that they attended, um, he shared a story of a young couple um, that was bidding farewell to their home country church as they were about to leave for an African field known as the white man's grave. And the husband said, my wife and I have a strange dread in going on this journey. We feel much as if we were going down into a pit. We are willing to take the risk and go if you, our home circle, will promise to hold the ropes. One and all promised. Less than two years passed when the wife and the little one God had given them succumbed to dreaded fever. Soon the husband realized his days too were numbered. Not waiting to send home word of his coming, he started back at once and arrived at the hour of the Wednesday prayer meeting. He slipped in unnoticed, taking a back seat. At the close of the meeting, he went forward, and awe came over the people, for death was written on his face. He said, I am your missionary. My wife and child are buried in Africa, and I have come home to die. This evening, I listened anxiously as you prayed for some mention of your missionary to see if you were keeping your promise, but in vain. You prayed for everything connected with yourselves and your home church, but you forgot your missionary. I see now why I am a failure as a missionary. It is because you have failed to hold the ropes. Are we doing all that we could or should? Are we focused on the kingdom? Are we holding the ropes? Let us pray together that a great work may be begun.